Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother, Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we're going over the Come Follow Me lesson from May 18th to 24th, 2020, covering Mosiah chapters 25 through 28. And now, let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hooray! I'm so excited to be in the same room with you. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 27 minutes, 59 seconds. All right. We're getting right back to normal. You know, we were kind of long last time, but uh, this one's pretty good. Yeah, we can do it. Four minutes a day, people. We can. can. So let's jump into it. All right. Well, you know, there was an unfulfilled promise in our last episode. In Mosiah 21, verse 35... It says, they were desirous to be baptized. He's talking about Limhi's people. Desirous to be baptized as a witness and a testimony that they were willing to serve God with all their hearts. Remember, Limhi's people were the leftovers. They weren't converted by Abinadi. They didn't follow Alma. And they've gone through a lot of trials. Nevertheless, they did prolong the time. And an account of their baptism shall be given hereafter. Well, today is hereafter. Hooray! Now, in the past, we've tried to do uh, an overview. And Mosiah is the most convoluted. But I've got one more graphic to just do a quick cover of what is covered in what chapters. All right? King Mosiah, King Benjamin, King Mosiah II in the north. The references are there. Omni through Mosiah seven. And then in the south, while that's going on in the north, we've got Zenith down here, King Noah, King Limhi, and the references are right there. Then we have the chapters that connect those two stories. In the days of King Mosiah and the days of Limhi, Mosiah 7 through 8 into 21 into 22, that story is when that everything comes together. And then we have a little sidebar because something happened with Alma and his people. And uh, we get that in Mosiah 23 and 24. So maybe this graphic will be useful on top of all the other times we've tried to explain it. This will give you an overview of how all the pieces fit. And now we're ready. For our listening audience, we're sorry. Yeah. (laughs) But tune into YouTube and you can see the graphic. Yes. It'll be fine. All right. Mosiah 25, we're starting out with King Mosiah gathering all the people. Now, consider that his grandfather, Mosiah I, had a similar task, except he was joining two people. He joined the Nephites and the people of Zarahemla. Now we've got the people of Zarahemla, the Nephites, and Limhi's people, and Alma's people. we got a lot of people that we're bringing together. Yeah. And as the next two verses point out, the Nephites are the minority here. Mm-hmm. The people of Zarahemla outnumber the Nephites, and the Lamanites outnumber the Nephites. The Nephites are not half as many as the Lamanites. Yeah. So what's interesting about that? Why the Nephites? Why are they the ones running the show? And I would submit that these are the followers of God. And we'll see that come into play actually a little later, too, that there is certainly respect for those who are doing their best to serve God and to follow his commandments, and that those seem to be the natural leaders. Yeah, and something else to point about these populations, the Nephites are described here as those who were descendants of Nephi in verse 2. So that is more restrictive than the people of Zarahemla, who are descendants of Mulek, which was way back when, and again, Mulek and his people, this could be a much larger, even different tribal affiliations under that title. And then, of course, Lamanites, they're not saying descendants of Laman here. They're saying Lamanites, and that's everybody who's against the Nephites. So that's an even bigger group that could be under that umbrella. If you broaden your imagination to suggest the notion of incorporating indigenous peoples, yeah, this becomes a much broader situation. Yeah. Good point. So verse four, we've got the people split into two bodies. Uh, We're not really clear on why that's being done. I'm wondering if that's the Zenith group 
maybe. Because, you know, King Benjamin kind of unified everybody under Christ. So it might be the northern people and then the southern people, the, the Zenith's people, which would have included Almas. And it doesn't say, but that could be one way. It, it really down. doesn't. And you know what? It's a very human nature thing for us to kind of categorize people and to section them off. It could just simply be something pragmatic that they were just too many people together in one place. All the tall That's people possible. on one side, all the short people. Yeah. <laughs> it's possible. Tall people in the back. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? Verse 5, Mosiah reads Zenith's and Noah's and Limhi's story. In verse 6, he reads Alma's people's story. So in verse 7, we get the responses from the people. Just look at some of these responses. Now, when Mosiah had made an end of reading the records, his people who tarried in the land were struck with wonder and amazement, for they knew not what to think. In the next few verses here, when they beheld... Those that had been delivered out of bondage, they were filled with exceedingly great joy. And again, when they thought of their brethren who had been slain by the Lamanites, they were filled with sorrow and even shed many tears. And again, when they thought of the immediate goodness of God and his power in delivering Alma and his brethren out of the hands of the Lamanites and of bondage, they did raise their voices and give thanks to God. And again, when they thought upon the Lamanites who were their brethren of the sinful and polluted state, they were filled with pain and anguish for the welfare of their souls. In 12, it goes on to talk about a very specific situation, but this was an emotional roller coaster. At every place, the people were just, their hearts were just out on all parts of this narrative. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Yeah, it was incredible. After all of this, after the story becomes made known to everyone, in 12, it says the children of Amulon and his brethren. Amulon was the, the head of the priests of King Noah. Remember, they left their women and children behind and, and then took the daughters of the Lamanites, kidnapped them and married them. It says in 12 that their children would no longer be called by the names of their fathers. So they took upon themselves the name of Nephi and became Yeah, let's the read those a minute. So in verses 12 and 13... And it came to pass that those who were the children of Amulon and his brethren, who had taken to wife the daughters of the Lamanites, were displeased with the conduct of their fathers, and they would no longer be called by the names of their fathers. Therefore they took upon themselves the name of Nephi, that they might be called the children of Nephi, and be numbered among those who were called Nephites. And now all the people of Zarahemla were numbered with the Nephites." And this because the kingdom had been conferred upon none but those who were descendants of Nephi. Here again, an interesting example. Why the minority group? Why were they the favorite? It was the same as from the beginning. You know, when we talked early on about the Book of Mormon, Lehi and his family, why was Nephi the favorite son? It was because he was following the commandments of God. And so we go on, verses 14 through 16, Mosiah wants Alma to teach the people. And that was interesting to me because remember that Benjamin had certainly taught the people. And, you know, we had the wonderful speeches at the beginning of the book of Mosiah. Uh, He hands over the kingdom to his son, Mosiah II, and obviously a righteous king. But here's somebody, Alma the elder, who... Mosiah has not met before. He doesn't know him. And yet there's a sense of trust in his role as a spiritual leader and certainly has read his story that he encourages Alma to teach the people. And in the next few verses, uh, Limhi and his people are baptized by the hand of Alma. This is verses uh, 17 and 18. And that fulfills the promise that the account of their baptism would be given hereafter and Verse 18 is the hereafter. Just to connect the stories, these are the people that rejected Abinadi and rejected Alma. And yet, Alma is still, years later, has the opportunity to baptize all of them. And what an amazing experience that must have been. It must have been. And not only did he have the opportunity to baptize them, Mosiah grants that he teaches all the people throughout Zarahemla and gives him authority to organize churches. 
Uh, There's also a curious phrase here in the next few verses that Mosiah gave him power to ordain priests and teachers over every church. Is that maybe an allusion to a king consecrating priests? Yeah, interesting. So there are many churches formed because there are so many people, but they were all one church of God. And the last verse there in verse 24, and they were called the people of God. And the Lord did pour out his spirit upon them, and they were blessed and prospered in the land. So there's our happy ending. Yay! And that's the culmination of all those story threads, Mm -hmm. you know, that we started really in in around chapter 7. This brings it all together. And that's the end of the Book of Mormon. So we'll talk (laughs) to you next week when... No, there's still some more. There is. And what's going to happen in chapter 26? Uh Uh-oh. First few verses. Yeah, well, you can tell it's bad already because I, I marked them all in gray because it's dismal. Yep. <laughs> now it came to pass that there were many of the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin, being little children at the time he spake unto his people. And they did not believe the tradition of their fathers. They did not believe what had been said concerning the resurrection of the dead, neither did they believe concerning the coming of Christ. And now, because of their unbelief, they could not understand the word of God, and their hearts were hardened, and they would not be baptized, neither would they join the church. And they were a separate people as to their faith, and remained so ever after, even in their carnal and sinful state, for they would not call upon the Lord their God. And now, in the reign of Mosiah, they were not half so numerous as the people of God, but because of the dissensions among the brethren, they became more numerous. And so, before you blame the rising generation for taking down the church, understand that there were already dissensions forming within the church. Which I'm sure contributed to what yeah, was going on with that the youth. contributed to the problem. Notice some of the pattern that's here. It begins with them not understanding the words which King Benjamin spoke, and his words were meant to bring the people into covenant with Christ and to understand why they needed Christ. Because they didn't understand that, they did not believe. And because of their unbelief, in verse 3, they could not understand the word of God. This reminds me of a conference talk from back in 2015, the April conference. It was uh, Elder Wilford W. Anderson. He gave a talk called The Music of the Gospel. You might remember it. In the talk, he relates our performance of the gospel to a dance and how awkward it is if we're dancing but not hearing the music. That notion of hearing the music is what motivates us to dance. And sometimes our youth or us are going through the motions, we're doing the dance, but we start to feel ridiculous because we don't hear the music. Maybe we can see other people that hear the music, we, maybe we trust them, but if we're not having that gospel in our heart, then going through the motions, we can get burned out. It can feel difficult, especially in the face of challenges. I don't know if that played in with the youth, but it reminded me of it as I was reading this Because in verse 4, they exercise their agency again here. They would not be baptized. They would not join the church. They would not call upon the Lord their God. They're using their agency, and they're refusing to do the things that would bring them into a relationship with God. So I guess getting back to the beginning of it, one has to hope to look at this pattern and try to get in on the front end. Understanding, of course, that just because we've explained the need for Christ, just because we've talked about those things that can bring us to Christ, doesn't mean people still won't make other choices. Sure. And one of the things that I've thought about, too, as I've gotten older, I feel that the older generation often takes an unfair perspective on the younger generation. And part of that unfair perspective has to do with a lack of accountability. Sometimes we feel that when the younger generation attempts to reinvent the wheel or to deliberately resist what the older generation has taught, there's a sense that 
you know, they don't understand. We've already gone down this road and we realize that it has a destructive end and so we've avoided it. Well, then if they're going down the same road, wouldn't that mean that we haven't done a good enough job of teaching them why we're doing what we're doing? Yeah, that's so important. And especially in context of the gospel, understand that nobody inherits a testimony. They have to learn it for themselves. Everybody has to have that opportunity where they pray and they receive that confirmation from the Spirit so that they know of themselves. Everybody, when a new person is born, they will eventually need that opportunity to talk to their Heavenly Father and gain their own personal witness. It's something that we have to teach every generation, and we have to teach them not only the motions, as Jay so aptly talked about with the dance. We need to explain why we're doing this and why it should be important to them. There's a quote that I pulled out of the Institute Manual. This is from President Henry B. Eyring. This was a CES fireside, I think, uh, in February 2nd, 2001. Uh, It was an evening with Elder Neil A. Maxwell, but this is President Eyring's comment. He says, quote, No charge in the kingdom is more important than to build faith in youth. Each child in each generation chooses faith or disbelief. Faith is not an inheritance, it is a choice. Those who believed King Benjamin learned that. Many of their children chose later not to believe. The scriptures give as a reason, for they would not call upon the Lord their God. End quote. And if that's not enough of a witness that the church values youth and teaching the youth, Think about some of the changes that have happened in the last year or two. There has been a lot of of responsibilities that have been removed from the bishop so that the bishop could focus strictly on the youth as much as possible. There has been a new youth program announced. And we had two youth speakers in our last general conference. Well, and add to that the importance of learning the gospel in the home and and understanding that for each one of us, our spiritual health is our personal responsibility. And why are the youth so important? They are the rising generation. They need to have that opportunity that you likely have already had. They need to have that experience with coming to know the scriptures and to gain that personal witness. So very important. Well, and one more thing just to tack on to that, as Elder Eyring said, the notion of faith being a choice, the faith is. And therefore, there has to be a compelling reason to believe and a compelling reason not to believe. And then we make choices based on that. If there's a compelling reason not to believe and we choose not to call upon God, we've made a choice of where we want to go, what path we want, and the kind of person that we want to be. Uh, If we make a choice to believe, because there are reasons to believe, then we see what that does to us. How does that change us? And that experiment of making those choices and testing those waters, really important. That's what the plan of salvation was all about. Yeah. And we should point out, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but the reverse of this situation is not necessarily true. So, for example, if you have taught your child the gospel and you've done your best to explain the why, and they've still chosen something else, that's still their choice. Yeah. Yep. That's important. It doesn't mean that you haven't given your best effort. Yes. But as the Book of Mormon constantly reaffirms, The challenge to the church comes from within the church, not from the outside. And John, as you pointed out, there's great dissensions happening within the church. And we're about to get an excellent example, in fact, of a situation in which, despite a parent's best efforts, the child has chosen something else. Different choices, yep. So verses uh, 6 and 7, the rising generation used flattering words to deceive the people And the teachers delivered the deceived people to the priests, and the priests delivered them to Alma, the high priest. So why would these people be deceived? 
I got a quote from the Gospel Doctrine Manual from then Elder Ezra Taft Benson. I really liked it. It's from General Conference, October 1964. <laughs> Remember that. Quote, Seeking the applause of the world, we like to be honored by the men the world honors. But therein lies the real danger. For oft times, in order to receive those honors, we must join forces with and follow those same devilish influences and policies which brought some of those men to positions of prominence. Today, we are being plagued within by the flattery of prominent men in the world. End quote. Yeah, no, that wasn't yesterday. That was over 50 years ago. And it's gotten worse. That's a good warning. So the people are brought to Alma, and we're left with a bit of a dilemma. Who's the judge? Oh, well, Alma felt certainly that uh, King Mosiah maybe should be the judge. Uh-huh. King Mosiah seemed to feel that that should be the high priest's job, Alma's. So let's read a little bit about this back and forth. Verse 8. Now King Mosiah had given Alma the authority over the church, and it came to pass that Alma did not know concerning them, but there were many witnesses against them. Yea, the people stood and testified of their iniquity in abundance. Now there had not any such thing happened before in the church. Therefore Alma was troubled in his spirit, and he caused that they should be brought before the king. And he said unto the king, Behold, here are many whom we have brought before thee, who are accused of their brethren, yea, and they have been taken in divers iniquities, and they do not repent of their iniquities. Therefore we have brought them before thee, that thou mayest judge them according to their crimes. But King Mosiah said unto Alma, Behold, I judge them not. Therefore I deliver them into thy hands to be judged. Now, just a quick aside here. This is a really interesting example. Why is King Mosiah II handing off? Is it because he's trying to pass the buck? No, I think King Mosiah understands his role. These people may have committed iniquities, but not necessarily broken the law. King Mosiah understood that he was a legal executor. He was not the head of the church. He had given that post, the post of high priest, to Alma. And so if it's an admonition for wrongdoing, moral violation, that's Alma's responsibility. I could see how Alma would want to have someone else take that on. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a heavy burden. That is a very heavy burden. And in verse 13, we see that Alma's got a real dilemma on his hands. And now the spirit of Alma was again troubled. And he went and inquired of the Lord what he should do concerning this matter, for he feared that he should do wrong in the sight of God. And it came to pass that after he had poured out his whole soul to God, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, Blessed art thou, Alma, and blessed are they who are baptized in the waters of Mormon. Thou art blessed because of thy exceeding faith in the words alone of my servant Abinadi. And blessed are they because of their exceeding faith in the words alone which thou hast spoken unto them. And blessed art thou because thou hast established a church among this people, and they shall be established, and they shall be my people. Yea, blessed is this people who are willing to bear my name, for in my name shall they be called, and they are mine. And because thou hast inquired of me concerning the transgressor, Thou art blessed. Thou art my servant, and I covenant with thee that thou shalt have eternal life, and thou shalt serve me and go forth in my name and shalt gather together my sheep. Quick pause there. There is a very significant phrase in that verse. I covenant with thee that thou shalt have eternal life. That should mean something to every member of the church. I pulled this quote from the Institute Manual. It's from the History of the Church, Volume 3. Quote, After a person has faith in Christ, repents of his sins, and is baptized for the remission of his sins, and receives the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, 
Then let him continue to humble himself before God, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and living by every word of God, and the Lord will soon say unto him, Son, thou shalt be exalted. When the Lord has thoroughly proved him and finds that the man is determined to serve him at all hazards, then the man will find his calling and his election made sure. Then it will be his privilege to receive the other comforter, which the Lord hath promised the saints, as is recorded in the testimony of St. John. End quote. That is amazing. We don't have very many records of people's calling an election made sure. And so this does seem to be the case for Alma the Elder. Well, and I'm sure that provided some comfort for him, but he still got a tough task ahead. Mm, indeed. Verse 21, And he that will hear my voice, this is still the Lord talking, And he that will hear my voice shall be my sheep. And him shall ye receive into the church, and him will I also receive. For behold, this is my church. Whosoever is baptized shall be baptized unto repentance. And whomsoever ye receive shall believe in my name, and him will I freely forgive. For it is I that taketh upon me the sins of the world. For it is I that hath created them. And it is I that granteth unto them that believeth unto the end a place at my right hand. For behold, in my name are they called. And if they know me, they shall come forth and shall have a place eternally at my right hand. Isn't that another interesting phrase? Talking about those that know him. And as President Nelson has encouraged us to hear him. From the Institute Manual, I pulled out another quote from Elder Joseph B. Worthlin. This is from his book, Finding Peace in Our Lives. Quote, We can choose to know the Lord by reading the scriptures every day, by communicating with him in fervent prayer, at least morning and night, and in times of trial, every hour or more, if needed, and by keeping his commandments. Remember, Hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. End quote. Great verse there from First John. Going on. And it shall come to pass that when the second trump shall sound, then shall they that never knew me come forth and shall stand before me. And then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, that I am their Redeemer. But they would not be redeemed. And then I will confess unto them that I never knew them. And they shall depart into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Therefore I say unto you, that he that will not hear my voice, the same shall ye not receive into my church. For him I will not receive at the last day. Therefore I say unto you, Go, and whosoever transgresseth against me, him shall ye judge according to the sins which he has committed. And if he confess his sins before thee and me, and repenteth in the sincerity of his heart, him shall ye forgive." and I will forgive him also. Yea, and as often as my people repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me. And ye shall also forgive one another your trespasses. For verily I say unto you, he that forgiveth not his neighbor's trespasses, when he says that he repents, the same hath brought himself under condemnation. Now I say unto you, go, and whosoever will not repent of his sins, the same shall not be numbered among my people, and this shall be observed from this time forward. That's an interesting wow. comparison of who the sinner is and who the repentant is. In 30 and 31, inasmuch as we repent, God will forgive us. But if somebody repents, and notice the phrase there, when he says that he repents, it's not up to you to decide whether or not he's repentant. If somebody says that they are repentant and you don't forgive them, then you now are under condemnation. 
I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. Yes. So that's an amazing statement from the Lord, and that certainly is exactly the answer that Alma needed. Yep. And he goes out. Verse 33, And it came to pass that when Alma had heard these words, he wrote them down. And I have every reason to believe that Mormon quoted those verbatim. That he wrote them down, that he might have them, and that he might judge the people of that church according to the commandments of God. And it came to pass that Alma went and judged those that had been taken in iniquity according to the word of the Lord. And whosoever repented of their sins and did confess them, them he did number among the people of the church. And those that would not confess their sins and repent of their iniquity, the same were not numbered among the people of the church, and their names were blotted out. There's an interesting quote from the Institute Manual about that phrase blotted out from then Elder Dallin H. Oaks. This comes from his book, The Lord's Way. Quote, church discipline encourages members to keep the commandments of God. Its mere existence stresses the seriousness and clarifies the meaning of the commandments of God. This is extremely important in an otherwise permissive society. The shepherd has a responsibility to protect the flock. That responsibility may require him to deny the sinner the fellowship of the saints or even to sever his membership in the flock. As Jesus taught, if he repent not, he shall not be numbered among my people, that he may not destroy my people. For behold, I know my sheep, and they are numbered. End quote. Well, and in part, well, I mean, it is. It's a choice that a person makes. I don't know of any situation where somebody desperately wants to stay with the church and the church says, don't know. No, quite the opposite. From my experience and from here, this is something that is a response to a person's choice and agency. Agreed. So then we end the chapter with Alma and the leaders regulating all of the affairs of the church, and we go on. So now we come to chapter 27, and we start the chapter seeing that there is still a problem in the sense that those who have chosen to dissociate themselves from the church are causing a problem. The unbelievers are heavily persecuting those who do believe in the church, which is interesting because they're the minority at this point. Yeah, they're a vocal minority, I'll bet. I'm sure they're a loud vocal minority. So this became so much of a problem that the members of the church complained to Alma, and Alma complained to King Mosiah. Now, King Mosiah... Notice that he acts this time. He understands and sees a moment to impose a legal fix to this problem and basically states a proclamation, nobody persecutes. We're not going to tolerate that here. You can believe what you want, but you don't persecute other people for believing what they believe. And the intention, as it's listed in verse 3, is that there should be an equality mm -hmm. among all men. Now, I don't know how they understand things like freedom of speech or things like that, but I certainly trust that Mosiah, as a prophet and seer, is making the right call for his people. So in the next verses, we discover who the principal troublemakers seem to be. And interestingly enough, we have Alma, the high priest's son, who is also named Alma, who we will refer to as Alma the Younger. And the king's sons, the sons of Mosiah, they seem to be the principal instigators here. Five of the most powerful young men in the kingdom are going about seeking to destroy the church of God, which begs the question, why? There was a woman who commented on one of my YouTube videos uh, a little while back in response to somebody who was uh, antagonistic toward the church. And she said, I left the Catholic Church years ago. I've never once gone to a Catholic website to jeer at them and persecute them. That's a fascinating thing. If you've grown in one direction, why turn around and attack your past? The only thing I can think of for Alma and the Sons of Mosiah is they recognize the power 
that is in the gospel. And they want to eliminate that. And what about Alma the Younger? Do they want to eliminate it or do they want to harness it for themselves? Well, how so? That seems to be the other motivation, is that those who would attempt to tear down would attempt to gain followers of their own. I see. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Well, so what happens? Verse 11. And as I said unto you, as they were going about rebelling against God, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto them, and he descended as it were in a cloud, and he spake as it were with a voice of thunder, which caused the earth to shake upon which they stood. And so great was their astonishment that they fell to the earth and understood not the words which he spake unto them. Nevertheless, he cried again, saying, Alma, arise and stand forth. For why persecutest thou the church of God? For the Lord hath said, This is my church, and I will establish it, and nothing shall overthrow it, save it is the transgression of my people. And again, The angel said, Behold, the Lord hath heard the prayers of his people and also the prayers of his servant, Alma, who is thy father. For he has prayed with much faith concerning thee that thou mightest be brought to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, for this purpose, have I come to convince thee of the power and authority of God, that the prayers of his servants might be answered according to their faith. And now, behold, can ye dispute the power of God? For behold, doth not my voice shake the earth? And can ye not also behold me before you? And I am sent from God. Now I say unto thee, Go, and remember the captivity of thy fathers in the land of Helam, and in the land of Nephi, and remember how great things he has done for them. For they were in bondage, and he has delivered them. And now I say unto thee, Alma, Go thy way and seek to destroy the church no more, that their prayers may be answered, and this even if thou wilt of thyself be cast off. And now it came to pass that these were the last words which the angel spake unto Alma, and he departed. And now Alma and those that were with him fell again to the earth, for great was their astonishment, for with their own eyes they had beheld an angel of the Lord, and his voice was as thunder which shook the earth. And they knew that there was nothing save the power of God that could shake the earth and cause it to tremble as though it would part asunder. And now the astonishment of Alma was so great that he became dumb, that he could not open his mouth, yea, and he became weak even that he could not move his hands. Therefore he was taken by those that were with him, and carried helpless, even until he was laid before his father. And they rehearsed unto his father all that had happened unto them. And his father rejoiced, for he knew that it was the power of God. I love that his father rejoiced. It's great. And why wouldn't his father rejoice? He had just gotten his calling on election made sure. He probably knew this was coming. Well, the one thing that I love is... Alma the Younger is a chip off the old block. Whatever his father is struggling with with his son, his dad, Alma, did it too. He was a wicked priest of King Noah. He was leading the people astray. He was involved in all kinds of wickedness. And he had his conversion experience and became a powerful instrument in the hand of God. That must have been part of his prayer he recognizes the potential that Alma has if it could be turned to do God's work. He was blessed with many gifts. And to get to see this happen, what a blessing. It's interesting, too, to me how much remembering was an important part of what the angel was telling him. Before he left, he said, remember these miracles that have happened in your lifetime that you have you know, whether he's heard, he obviously has heard some of these stories because he wasn't there in the land of Nephi, I, I don't think. But he certainly was a part of the experiences happening in Helam. And, you know, he this is part of his family history. The miracles that were a part of that, remember that. And it seems like he's telling him to remember it in a way that says, you know, this is true. 
You know, you 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 almost have to cover this up in order to pursue the route you're pursuing. Mm. That's the way it comes off to me anyway. There's a great quote that I found in the Old Gospel Doctrine Manual from Jeffrey R. Holland. This is from an Enzyme article in March 1977 called Alma, Son of Alma. Quote, perhaps no anguish of the human spirit matches the anguish of a mother or father who fears for the soul of a child. But parents can never give up hoping or caring or believing. Surely they can never give up praying. At times, prayer may be the only course of action remaining, but it is the most powerful of them all. End quote. I love that. Touches me particularly as a parent. I love that the angel mentions that to Alma, that part of the mm-hmm. reason he's there are the prayers of the righteous. Yep. It's great. And more so than just his father. Mm-hmm. The people of the church, the people he's persecuting, by the way. Yeah. Are praying for his soul. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. So the next couple of verses, Alma the Elder and the people of the church fast and pray that Alma the Younger might speak and that his limbs would receive their strength. There's an institute quote that I wanted to include. It's from General Conference, October 1985. This is Elder Theodore M. Burton. He is talking about having to deal with disciplinary councils and in particular people who are being reinstated in the church. He says, quote, I've been asked the question, isn't it depressing to have to review the sins and transgressions of people involved in such difficulties? It would be if I were looking for sins and transgressions, but I'm working with people who are repenting. These are sons and daughters of God who have made mistakes, some of them very serious, but they are not sinners. They were sinners in the past, but have learned through bitter experience the heartbreak that results from disobedience to God's laws. Now they are no longer sinners. They are God's repentant children who want to come back to him and are striving to do so. They have made their mistakes and have paid for them. Now they seek understanding, love, and acceptance, end quote. That's just fantastic. remember. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I love that. And so then, let's move on. Verse 23, And it came to pass that after they fasted and prayed for the space of two days and two nights, the limbs of Alma received their strength, and he stood up and began to speak unto them, bidding them to be of good comfort. For, said he, I have repented of my sins and have been redeemed of the Lord. Behold, I am born of the Spirit. And the Lord said unto me, Marvel not that all mankind, yea, men and women and all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, must be born again, yea, born of God, changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming his sons and daughters. And thus they become new creatures, and unless they do this, they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. I say unto you, unless this be the case, they must be cast off. And this I know, because I was like to be cast off. Nevertheless, after waiting through much tribulation, repenting nigh unto death, the Lord in mercy hath seen fit to snatch me out of an everlasting burning, and I am born of God. My soul hath been redeemed from the gall of bitterness and bonds of iniquity. I was in the darkest abyss. But now I behold the marvelous light of God. My soul was racked with eternal torment, but I am snatched, and my soul is pained no more. I rejected my Redeemer and denied that which had been spoken of by our fathers. But now that they may foresee that he will come and that he remembereth every creature of his creating, he will make himself manifest unto all. Yea, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess before him. Yea, even at the last day, when all men shall stand to be judged of him, then shall they confess that he is God. Then shall they confess, who live without God in the world, that the judgment of an everlasting punishment is just upon them. And they shall quake and tremble and shrink beneath the glance of his all-searching eye. That is one of the great, amazing 
conversion stories in the Book of Mormon. You know, there's different tones that we can take when we think about our position before God, but the way that he describes this last judgment, this everlasting punishment, this quaking and trembling, I think it's because he's felt it, he's been there, he's experienced it. We'll get a chance to get him, the account that we have of his experience with the angel is Mormon's summary of the account, but we'll get it in his own words coming up in chapter 36 of Alma. And I think that last verse in particular will be very poignant in light of what he experienced. Indeed. Now, this is a very dramatic conversion, and there are in the scriptures certainly examples of dramatic conversions, but I found this quote in the Institute Manual from President Ezra Taft Benson that I wanted to include. This is from an article in the October 1989 Enzyme called A Mighty Change of Heart. President Benson says, quote, We must be careful as we seek to become more and more godlike that we do not become discouraged and lose hope. Becoming Christ-like is a lifetime pursuit and very often involves growth and change that is slow, almost imperceptible. The scriptures record remarkable accounts of men whose lives changed dramatically in an instant, as it were. Alma the Younger, Paul on the road to Damascus, Enos praying far into the night, King Lamoni, such astonishing examples of the power to change even those steeped in sin give confidence that the atonement can reach even those deepest in despair. But we must be cautious as we discuss these remarkable examples. Though they are real and powerful, they are the exception more than the rule. For every Paul, for every Enos, and for every King Lamoni, there are hundreds and thousands of people who find the process of repentance much more subtle, much more imperceptible. Day by day, they move closer to the Lord, little realizing they are building a godlike life. They live quiet lives of goodness, service, and commitment. They are like the Lamanites, who the Lord said were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. End quote. Great stuff. You know, also from the Institute Manual, there's another quote from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland in regard to all this. This is from his book, However Long and Hard the Road. Quote, We learn that repentance is a very painful process. By his own admission, Alma said he wandered through much tribulation, repenting nigh unto death, that he was consumed with an everlasting burning. I was in the darkest abyss, he said. My soul was racked with eternal torment. For three seemingly endless days and nights, he was torn with the pains of a damned soul. Pain so real that he was physically incapacitated and spiritually terrorized by what appeared to be his ultimate fate. No one should think that the gift of forgiveness is fully realized without significant effort on the part of the forgiven. No one should be foolish enough to sin willingly or wantonly thinking forgiveness is easily available. Repentance of necessity involves suffering and sorrow. Anyone who thinks otherwise has not read the life of the young Alma, nor tried personally to repent. In the process of repentance, we are granted just a taste of the suffering we would endure if we failed to turn away from evil. That pain, though only momentary for the repentant, is the most bitter of cups. No man or woman should be foolish enough to think it can be sipped, even briefly, without consequence. We learn that when repentance is complete, we are born again and leave behind forever the self we once were. To me, none of the many approaches to teaching repentance falls more short than the well-intentioned suggestion that Although a nail may be removed from a wooden post, there will forever be a hole in that post. We know that repentance, the removal of that nail, if you will, can be a very long and painful and difficult task. Unfortunately, some will never have the incentive to undertake it. We even know that there are a very few sins for which no repentance is possible. But where repentance is possible... 
and its requirements are faithfully pursued and completed, there is no hole left in the post for the bold reason that it is no longer the same post. It is a new post. We can start again, utterly clean, with a new will and a new way of life. End quote. Fantastic. What a great image. That's amazing to me. Yeah. I love that notion of it being a new post. It's not that the hole was puttied up somehow or whatever. It's a new post. Yeah. You're a new creature. We've got a new Alma and we've got a new Sons of Mosiah. Uh, And in 32, they head out to fix as much as they can, whatever they've done. This is remarkable because the people that they're encountering are the people who used to cheer them, who used to celebrate Alma and the sons of Mosiah. They were heroes. They were their disciples. Yeah. Well, and now in 32, they went around publishing what they'd seen, preaching the word of God and much tribulation, being greatly persecuted by those who were unbelievers, being smitten by many of them. And that's interesting because if you have, if you're engaged in a discussion, an argument, a debate with somebody and they can't defend themselves, then they turn to insults and violence. Yep. Every time. And that's generally their response, right? These were the former disciples of Alma the Younger and the Sons of Mosiah basically saying, ah, you guys are sellouts. Yep. Well, okay, but they're still not wrong. Yeah. (laughs) They're still preaching the truth. Well, and we're going to see that in, I mean, people have probably experienced it in their own lives, but we were introduced to Gideon last time. Gideon's story ends up that way too, going up against an antichrist who can't defend against the testimony, the power, the things that Gideon says. But we'll get to that in in Alma chapter one next week. Let's not jump the gun. There's a quote that I pulled out of the Old Gospel Doctrine Manual from Elder L. Tom Perry that says, quote, After conversion comes the desire to share, not so much out of a sense of duty, even though that responsibility falls on the priesthood, but out of a sincere love and appreciation for that which has been received. When such a pearl of great price comes into our lives, we cannot be content just to admire it by ourselves. It must be shared, end quote. That's from April 1984 General Conference. It's true. Yeah, and you see it here. What's really great, we talked about the persecution, but it goes on to tell us that they traveled throughout all the land of Zarahemla in 35 and 36. It says that they were instruments in the hands of God in bringing many to the knowledge of the truth, to a knowledge of their Redeemer. Do you remember Lehi's vision? Of the fruit of the tree, after he partake with the fruit of the tree, he was desirous that his family should partake of it also. Well, and, and just apparently, got a share. apparently these guys were very effective in doing that. Indeed. And as it describes in the last verse of chapter 27, this is verse 37, And how blessed are they, for they did publish peace. They did publish good things of good, and they did declare unto the people that the Lord reigneth. Nice little wrap up there, Mormon. Do those phrases sound familiar? Maybe Isaiah 52, the verses that the priests of Noah were jeering Abinadi with? (laughs) Here's the actual application, priests of Noah. Nice. Very nice. Well, okay. So they're so successful in their missionary work among the Nephites that the sons of Mosiah, back who are identified in verse 34 as Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, They want to go further out. They're not quite content on preaching to the people of Zarahemla. They want to go to the Lamanites. Yeah. The people who drove them up to find the people of Zarahemla in the first place. Right. They were probably waiting to attack them again. Well, and remember, that has been happening for 450 years with no success. So they're trying to do something that's never been done. Right. And if you remember our study of the book of Enos, Enos talks about attempts to preach to the Lamanites, but it well, was in vain. Jerem does too, and I'm sure that was a constant thing. If anybody could have done it, it seems like it would have been Zenith. You know, sure. he was friendly, nice. He wanted to build relationships, but nope. Nope. 
So look at their motivation in verse 2, that perhaps they might bring them, the Lamanites, to a knowledge of the Lord their God and convince them of the iniquity of their fathers, that perhaps they might cure them of their hatred. That's their goal. They want to cure them of their hatred. What's the cure for hatred? To bring them to a knowledge of the Lord their God, that they might also be brought to rejoice in the Lord their God, that they might become friendly to one another, and that there should no more be contentions in all the land which the Lord their God had given them. That's why. Isn't that always the answer? The notion of, you know, think about why the Lamanites hate the Nephites right now. I mean, not the profound, deep reasons, but the surface reasons. They hate the Nephites because they've been always taught to hate the Nephites. And the Nephites probably hated the Lamanites because they had always been taught to hate the Lamanites and certainly remembered the problems that the Lamanites had caused them in the past. The goal of the Sons of Messiah is to say, hey, no more Nephites and Lamanites. We are all children of God. And when you have that kind of unity, that's it. And it's so easy to hate somebody if you think of them as an other. You know, they're not like you are. There and it's so else. natural for us to do that. We do that all yeah, the time. Absolutely. And that's part of unifying uh, our group together in a, in a tribal kind of way. We need to broaden the view. And that's what the gospel does. It says, no, no, no. The tribe is everybody. So notice in verse 3, they were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature, for they could not bear that any human soul should perish Yea, and even the very thought that any soul should endure endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble. Now, I love this scripture. There is a video clip. If you guys have ever seen the Like in the Scriptures videos, I don't think they're doing those anymore, but they came out a while back, a number of them. They have one on Ammon, and Our family loves them. So they may not be everybody's thing, but we thought they were great. Just would you humor me a minute? Take a look at this clip. And would you think of verse three when you do? What do you see in verse three that relates to this clip about Ammon? A mighty change of heart has brought me here today. And if I play my part, I'll know just what to say. So I will open up my mouth and start to bring to pass a mighty change of heart. Now give all the strength in. I'll give service everywhere I go. I may not know how long the road will be, but I'll follow till I'm summoned home. Okay, so... I see what you did there. See, I I just, I mean, yes, it's silly. Yes, it's goofy. But they wanted the gospel to be declared to every creature. They could not bear that any human soul should perish. I just, I, I just thought it was, I thought that was great. <laughs> I like it when he gives them the little missionary, uh, a proselyting sized gold plates. And the right. honey. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 okay. I, thanks for humoring me for, for just a moment. <laughs> Verse four, and thus did the spirit of the Lord work upon them for they were the very vilest of sinners. And the Lord saw fit in his infinite mercy to spare them. Nevertheless, they suffered much anguish of soul because of their iniquity, suffering much and fearing that they should be cast off forever. And it came to pass that they did plead with their father many days that they might go up to the land of Nephi, which is the land of the Lamanites. And if we weren't clear on this before, the Nephites used to have the capital city of Nephi. Thus the name. Yeah, this was way back in the book of Omni. When Mosiah left, the Lamanites conquered all of that land, and the land of Nephi becomes a Lamanite territory pretty much from here on out. 
This experience that they share here about working with their father many days that they might go on this mission, we get a little window into how elaborate that was. Expanded, I think, more than just the talk with their father. If we jumped ahead to chapter 26 of Alma, in verses 23 through 25, I've got those here. This is at the end of their mission. And Ammon is talking about how incredible this whole experience is. And he fills in the gaps a little bit. He says, he's talking to his brothers here. Now, do you remember, my brethren, that we said unto our brethren in the land of Zarahemla, we go up to the land of Nephi to preach unto our brethren, the Lamanites. And they laughed us to scorn. For they said unto us, do ye suppose that ye can bring the Lamanites to the knowledge of the truth? Do ye suppose that ye can convince the Lamanites of the incorrectness of the traditions of their fathers? As stiff-necked a people as they are, whose hearts delight in the shedding of blood, whose days have been spent in the grossest iniquity, whose ways have been the ways of a transgressor from the beginning? And now, my brethren, ye remember that this was their language. And moreover, they did say, Let us take up arms against them, that we destroy them and their iniquity out of the land, lest they overrun us and destroy us. That was the conversation. And then he goes on to talk about how, but we didn't want to destroy. We wanted to save. And we're getting the beginning of that. Spoiler, they did. Yeah, that's so wonderful. Yep. So Mosiah was certainly reticent to let his sons go well, so dangerous. to the Lamanites and took his trouble to the Lord. And the Lord assures him that they should go and that they'll be the means of saving many and that the Lord promises that he will deliver the sons out of the hands of the Lamanites. And what could any parent want otherwise just to make sure that his sons are safe? But in verse 10, we have a bit of a dilemma. Mosiah doesn't have an heir. All four of his sons have rejected the kingdom. And so he has no one to pass the kingdom on to. And we'll talk more about his long-term solution to this problem next lesson. But for today, it goes on to talk about his translation of the Jaredite plates that Limhi brings him that they so discovered good. in the land of desolation. Yeah. We talked before about the interpreters. I've got the chart that I shared last time about just where they came from. And you could take a look at these scriptures and so forth, because it mentions the interpreters here, that specifically those two stones which were fastened into the two rims of a bow, that's what he used to translate. And so anyways, you may want to look these scriptures up, and it's kind of great to trace it through the brother of Jared to Joseph Smith. But this time I wanted to just talk for a minute about these plates, this translation, because when he translates it, and when they find out the contents of that in verse 17, uh, it gave an account of the people who were destroyed from the time that they were destroyed back to the building of the great tower. This book that they make known, verse 18, now this account did cause the people of Mosiah to mourn exceedingly. In verse 19, this account shall be written hereafter. For behold, it is expedient that all people should know the things which are written in this account. These plates kind of like the Book of Mormon for the people of the Book of Mormon. Uh, mm -hmm. Think about what they are and how they got them. First of all, these plates of ether. And if you're not familiar with the story, it'll be Moroni gives us an abbreviated version of the story in the Book of Ether. But it tells a story of a people from a biblical time and place that are led from a wicked city through the wilderness they're brought across the great sea to a promised land in the Americas, and it tells of their righteousness and wickedness and prophets and, and uh, falling away, and it introduces the danger of secret combinations. And the people become wicked and are eventually destroyed in a massive civil war. They destroy themselves. They do, yeah. And then the last prophet writes the account of his people on gold plates and hides them up. And then another nation, led by God to this land, finds the record, and they're translated by the gift and power of God. And it's kind of a cautionary tale to say, don't do this. We wasted the gift that was given. Learn from our mistakes. And apparently they do. 
this is a book that if we were to equate it to our day, they would have written primary songs about. They would have learned the chapters. They would have studied it in seminary. Moroni is very familiar with it. As a matter of fact, in Ether 5.1, he indicates that he's telling us the story from his memory. That's how well he knows it. And if you read the first chapter with all those genealogies, you should be pretty impressed. But again, I think it was probably a song. (laughs) I think it would be funny if it was. But the point is, this was their Book of Mormon. And that's why they include that summary. It's a second testimony to us. Anyways, this is where they get it. From this point on, they've got this book. You know, I hope, I wonder if they were able to tie the writings in the Jaredite plates to the stone of Coriantumr. Because they had that already, right? They you know, did, that yep. Was translated by King Mosiah I. Yep. I hope that they made that connection that, oh, this was the guy yeah. at the very end of this book. Yep, I'm sure. That would have been amazing. That must have been. So we wrap up the chapter with King Mosiah II taking the plates of brass and the other sacred relics which he has been keeping and bestows them upon Alma the Younger. We've got a real separation now of the religious side represented by Alma the Younger and then the kingly side represented by the king. It doesn't last long. You know, it's amazing to me that King Mosiah II, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but let's remember, King Mosiah II is no slouch when it comes to keeping the gospel. He is a seer. And it's interesting that he doesn't take the role of high priest or organizer of the religion to himself. He bestows that on other people. I think that's like Jethro level wise, though. You know how Moses was overwhelmed and his Mm -hmm. father-in-law comes and says, no, you can't do all this. Because Alma the Younger is going, in our next week, he's going to try to do it all himself. He's going to be the, well, we'll get to the governmental change. He's still going to be the high priest. He's going to be the captain of the military. I mean, he's kind of tries to do it all and quickly realizes that this was a terrible idea. Yeah. But what an amazing trust that King Mosiah has in recognizing that, yeah, you were a flake and you may have even, maybe it was a situation where Alma the Younger was integral in the downfall or the dissension of the sons of Mosiah early on. You know, maybe he Mm. was the the bad friend that... (laughs) The bad influence. Yeah, that... I don't want my kids playing with your kid anymore. Right, exactly. That could have been like that. Yeah. But now he recognizes that he has changed, and so much so that he recognizes that he can't pass on the plates of brass and the other sacred relics to his children because they are not going to be kings but he needs to make sure that they are passed on and protected, and so he hands them to Alma the Younger. That's amazing. What we were talking about with that, the post is different now. Mm-hmm. To see that— It's a new post. You have to know and trust the atonement, and obviously King Mosiah II does. He absolutely does. What a great Well, man. that's the end of our lesson today. We're so what? grateful. We only have one more chapter in Mosiah. That's true. Oh, we have to wait till next time? We do. We're going to have to find out how Mosiah ends next episode. And we hope you tune in. Keep reading the scriptures. We love your comments. And we look forward to talking to you then. Until then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans.